Deuteronomy 4, 1 to 9. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you the statutes and the rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who then, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this is a great nation. Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that the statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. This is God's word. Thank you, Joshua. Have you noticed that all of us quite often struggle with the same sin over and over and over again? We all struggle with the same flaws that each of us have over and over and over again. For some of us, it might be anger. Uh, for some of us, it might be rage. Uh, for some of us, it might be gossip and, and, and slander. Uh, for some of us, it might be bitterness. For some of us, it might be something like pornography. And so often, so many of us struggle with the same thing over and over and over again. And sometimes this goes on for years on end. Why is it? That despite our best intentions, despite our best efforts, why is it that almost all of us keep sinning, keep struggling with the same sin patterns again and again and again? The Bible passage we're looking at this morning is going to help us to find an answer to the question and in God's grace, a solution to the problem. But before we dive into that, Allow me to give some context to the passage, especially if this is your very first time in any church kind of setting. God chose to reveal His Son, Jesus Christ, to all of the world through one nation called Israel. And God chose Abraham from this nation. God called him to be this nation. God chose Abraham about 2,000 years before Jesus was born. A few years after he promised Abraham that Jesus would descend in his line, Israel found themselves enslaved in Egypt. And God freed Israel out of Egypt. God did that through Moses. If, even if this is your very first time in a church, I'm sure you've heard about Moses and the Ten Commandments, the plagues of Egypt, and all of that. And after Moses led Israel out of Egypt, um, just before he died, having led the people of God faithfully, he preached a long sermon. 
The book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament in the Bible, uh, from where we read today's passage, is actually the transcript of the sermon. It's a sermon that spans 34 chapters. It may have taken him 5-6 hours to preach the sermon. Uh, last Sunday, I was feeling a little bad because my sermon was really long. Longer than usual. It was about 45 minutes. We generally do about 35 minutes. It's not 45 minutes this Sunday. And I was feeling a little bad. Oh, it's kind of maybe I kind of went too long. And then I came across Deuteronomy. Moses preaching a six-hour sermon. And I felt good about myself. We never do six-hour sermons. 35, 40 minutes is what we're looking at this morning. The major emphasis in this portion of Moses' sermon is in verse 9. Only take care and keep your soul diligently. Keep your soul diligently, lest you forget that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Keep your soul diligently. That's what Moses said. That's the emphasis of this portion of the Bible. And that's what I want to major on today morning in our sermon. Keep your soul diligently. I'd like to draw three things for us from the past. What is the soul? Why is it important to keep our soul? And how do we keep our souls diligently? Three things. What is the soul? Why is it important to keep our souls? And how do we our souls diligently. Let's start with the first thing. What is the soul? Our souls are the deepest part of us. Our souls include our personalities and our consciousness, but it is more than just that. Our soul is the very essence of life that God has breathed into every one of us. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the creation account of the book of the Bible says this, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. God breathed into us, and we received a soul. Now there are two views among, among theologians. Uh, the first is what is called as the trichotomous view, and they believe that human beings are made up of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. And there's a dichotomous view, where people believe, Christians believe that human, human beings are made of body and soul. Uh, the dichotomous view says the Bible kind of uses soul and spirit kind of interchangeably in, 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 in many parts. And so it's basically body and soul. That's broadly the reform position. That's the position we hold on to. Uh, but I'm not going to dive deep into that. If there are some of you who might want to have a discussion on that, we'd be very happy to kind of do that. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, uh, Paul was a follower of Christ. He refers to the soul as the inner man. He does that a couple of times in Ephesians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Again, books in the New Testament. The inner man, the inner woman. All of us, at some level or the other, both believe in the soul and we also disbelieve in the soul. If you look at Indian tradition, if you look at Indian belief systems, the soul is an integral part. You know, whatever religion you may be from, most Indian belief systems acknowledge the reality of our soul. 
for those of us who are followers of Christ Jesus, the Bible teaches us that there is a soul. So at some level, we all believe in a soul. That we all have a soul. But at another level, we all also disbelieve that we have a soul because we live as if we don't have a soul. In our lives, when we make our life goals, when we have a life desires, when we have a life longings, when we invest, we rarely think about our soul. It's all the other things that we tend to acknowledge uh, more. And so that's a practical everyday life. And as the world has evolved, the postmodern belief systems, which is quite prevalent, secular postmodern belief systems, actually believe there is no soul. There is no scientific evidence of a soul. So they disbelieve it. Imagine with me for a moment that if we do not have a soul, imagine with me for a moment that the soul does not exist. What does it mean for us? What, what does it mean when we die as we all will? If you've seen the movie Terminator, uh, at the end of most Terminator movies, there's a blip and the blink screen goes dark. The Terminator has been terminated. That's it. Uh, we move into nothingness. It doesn't exist. The Terminator always come, keeps coming back. But not so in our case. We don't have a soul. If we don't have a soul, it means that when we die, we are terminated. Our loves, our memories, everything is terminated. Life has no meaning. Life has no value. We have no significance. We are just dust. We have no value, worth, or significance. We are just specks of inconsequential dust that flows through the universe here and now, gone tomorrow. Everything is fleeting. Nothing matters. Nothing comes. Nothing that you do or I do ever comes in the context of eternity don't have a soul, if we believe there is no soul, we have to believe that there is no meaning, worth, value, or significance to any of our lives. Thank God we have a soul. That human beings have no soul is a foolish notion. The soul is to our body what Wi-Fi is to all of our connected devices. If you were to bring a 4th century trial and show them your device, your iPhone or iPad, whatever, play a movie on it, and tell him this movie is being streamed onto the device on Wi-Fi, he or she is going to laugh at you. He's saying, where is the scientific evidence of Wi-Fi? I can't touch the Wi-Fi. I can't feel the Wi-Fi. I can't hear the Wi-Fi. And there is no such thing as a Wi-Fi. It's a product of your mere imagination. That's what he would say. But we know the Wi-Fi exists because the device is streaming. And so it is. We may not be able to feel our soul. We may not be able to touch it. We may not be tangible. Just because we can't see it, just because there's no scientific evidence for it, does not mean that there is no soul. Whatever scientific evidence we can make up, it's limited to our scientific knowledge, which is far from complete. So human beings are made of body and soul. The soul is 
this way. He said the soul, your soul is the most important part of you. It's the most important part of you. This does not mean that the body is less important. This does not mean that God's creation hierarchy, the soul comes first, but the body comes later. Not at all. God made us with body and soul. God has called us to worship Jesus. Not because we are to worship the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and with all our strength. When it says, when John Hartberg says, your soul is the most important part of you, each is referring to the reality that because of the fall, the bodies we have here and now will die when we die. Our souls will continue, but one day, those of us who believe in Christ will rise again from the dead with Christ, and we will receive new bodies, a new strength, the same soul in a new resurrected body. The soul is the real part of us. It is the most important part of us on this side of eternity. And so the soul is so important. What am I doing to keep my soul? And that's Moses' command. Keep your soul diligently. What am I doing? What are we doing to take care of our souls? To keep our souls. We eat well. We eat healthy. We exercise healthy. We try and sleep well. That's caring for our body. We apply our minds to education, to knowledge, to learning. We're training our mind. What are we doing to care for our souls? We obsess with our looks. We obsess with our fitness. We obsess with our careers. We obsess with our savings, our retirement, our finances, and all those are good things, good gifts God has given us to enjoy. But life is more than just these. How? care for our souls, which is the most important part of this. Think about this. The average person in Mumbai has no time or bandwidth to think about his or her soul. Life just goes on. It moves on faster and faster, faster and faster, busier and busier. He has no time to think about our souls. That brings us to the second thing I wanted to draw for us from this passage. Why is it important to keep our souls? Why does it matter? As we saw in this passage, through Moses, God commanded the Israelites, keep your souls diligently. Why is that? Why should we keep our souls diligent? Why should we care for our souls? What will happen if we don't? And the passage tells us exactly what will happen if we don't care for ourselves. It's there in the passage that we read. It says, only take care, verse 9, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. So Moses is saying that if you don't keep your soul, you will forget the things you are seeing. So what was it that the Israelites had seen that God did not want them to forget. That too is answered in the passage in verse 3. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. So what was it that happened at the Baal of Peor? One of Israel's enemy nation, the nation in Moab, had tried to curse Israel. And that didn't work. And so the Moabites sent their women to seduce the Israelites, seduce the Israelites, 
and to lure them away from their faith in the one true God. And it worked. We see this in another book of the Old Testament called Numbers chapter 25 verses 1 to 3. When Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. The people ate and bowed down to their gods, which are false gods. So Israel yoked himself, the all-nation foundation, to, to Baal of Behor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So God is warning the Israelites that if you don't keep your souls diligently, you will forget the old mistake of straying away from God, the one true God, and worshipping false gods. And this is true for us too. If we don't keep our souls diligently, we too will forget our old mistakes and we will keep doing the same sin over and over and over again. You know, family of this, are we not struggling with the same failure over? over and over again. Sin patterns and we know we've had for years sin patterns, flaws in us, character flaws that we want to get rid of. We know it's not good for us. We know these sins and flaws in us are harmful to us and those around us. Yet, we keep struggling with it over and over and over again. We struggle with the same temptation. We indulge in it, we give into it, we slip up, and then we repent. And of course, we believe in Christ afresh. And then a few days, a few weeks, a few months later, we fall into the same sin again and again and again. We all struggle with this. Do we not? I know I do. My wife knows I do, even if all of you do. Plays out for decades. Decades. It's not uncommon to see grown up, spoiled brats. We never grown up as in adults. Grown up, spoiled brats, we can only think about themselves. Me, I need myself at the center. I'm going to get upset. I'm going to get angry if somebody doesn't behave, behave the way I want. So whatever the sin pattern we keeping, we 
continuing to struggle with again and again and again, the reason for that is we fail to keep our souls. God is telling Israelites, remember your sin and they are pure? You will commit the same sin again and again if you don't keep your souls diligently. This is true, this was true of the Israelites, and this is true of us. Well, this is helpful, but this is also not so helpful. This is helpful because it's good to understand that, that we keep sinning again and again because we don't keep our souls diligently. In that sense, it is helpful. But it is not so helpful unless we really understand what does it mean to keep our souls? What, what on earth does that mean? To keep our souls. This brings us to the third, the last thing that I wanted to draw out for us from the passage. How do we keep our souls diligent? What does it really mean practically? Today, tomorrow, when I hit my, hit my workplace next week, the world hits me with all its temptations and pulls and pressures on my day. How do I keep my soul diligently? In the Bible, the word keep involves two meanings. First, uh, the original language in which this is written, the word keep quite literally means to hedge about with thorns. To build a safeguard, to build a fence around our souls to safeguard our souls. That's the first thing that it means. The second thing the word keep means is to nourish and to grow. So, for example, if you look at the book of Genesis, the creation of accounting again, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So, Adam was called to keep the garden, which is protect it and to nourish it, to grow it, to cultivate it. We're going to look at both of these implications of what it really means to keep our souls. First is the idea of building a hedge of protection around our souls. And in Christian circles, I have to say this is sadly misunderstood. One way we misunderstand this is one way is missing, we misunderstand this idea of keeping our soul, building a fence to protect our soul. It basically means shut your eyes, don't watch movies, don't listen to music, don't hang out with friends who are not Christians, don't do this, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that also, don't do anything. <laughs> you know, we've taken it to one extreme. We all kind of assume that this is what it means to guard our souls or keep our souls, which is basically to isolate ourselves from the world and come and hide inside the church. That's not what it means. This is not the hedge or the fence that we're called to build. Do you know what is the best fence that we can build around our souls? The best hedge of protection? The best fortress that we can build around our souls to keep our souls? It is to love Christ above all else. When we love Christ above all else, this is the best hedge we can build around our souls. The solution is not don't do this, don't do that. That's not the solution. The solution is love Christ above all else. Love the one who gave his life 
in exchange for ours. Love the sinless Son of God who died in our place. Love the sinless Christ who bore the punishment of every sin of yours and mine upon himself so that we could be forgiven, transformed, and accepted by God. So when we love Christ above all else, our souls and our heart will naturally move towards what is pure, what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful. And our souls will learn to reject all that is dark. Here's the thing. You see, a past experience of Christ may not give us present power to overcome temptation. We all need present, continuous love for Christ, a present, continuous enjoyment and experience of Christ to overcome present temptation. There's one more way to understand this, this whole idea of building a fence around our souls. Imagine you're a king and you're guarding a fortress and uh, the enemy is about to attack. What will you do? If the enemy is, the gate, is at the gates and about to attack, what will you do? Would you fortify the fences? Would you strengthen the ramparts? Would you strengthen the fortress? Stay in the safety of the fort and fight the enemy from who's on the offside? Or will you tell the enemy, please welcome into my gates? Come, let's fight the battle even in our fortress. What would you do? Quite obviously, we're going to build the walls, build the fortress, strengthen the fortress, and fight the enemy on the outside. If we don't keep our souls, if Christ, if our love for Christ is not the hedge we have built around our souls, then every single enemy we face, every single temptation, struggle, is going to feel very welcome to walk into our souls. And then we are not fighting the enemy outside, we are fighting the enemy Inside. As you know, it's very hard to win a battle when the enemy is already within the gates. So, which is why Moses, led by God, inspired by God, God is calling us to keep our souls diligent. That's the first way to build. What does it really mean to keep our souls? Love Christ and let that love for Christ be the wall around our souls. The second way to keep we keep our souls, is to nurture it with Christ. As we nurture a garden, how, how do we do this? And the, the passage we're looking at gives us the answer to it. I don't know if you noticed it, but three times in the passage, three times in just nine verses, whenever Moses refers to the command of God, commands that God has given Israelites, he says, do them. Do the commands. Do what God has instructed you. Do them, he says, Three times. You see, doing something completes our learning. Doing something etches it deep into our hearts. The more we do joyfully, with faith, with joyful, faithful obedience, the more we are able to internalize these truths and realities. James, a disciple of Jesus, says that faith without action is dead. 
if our faith in Jesus is indeed real, it must be overflowing into tangible action. If we keep saying we are believers of Christ, followers of Jesus, and we kind of dust out our Bible once in three months, uh, come to church once in, once a month or less, uh, come only when we are having a trouble or a disappointment or a challenge in life, if we do nothing to really for the outworking of our faith, are we really believers? Are we really living as we ought to as followers of Christ? Those of you who were uh, with us at the church retreat we had um, in, in, in August, you will remember Gunab was a speaker talking about the Christian ordinaries. Keep doing joyfully, not by road, not out of fear, not from a legalistic, self-righteous way, but out of a heart of joy and love for Christ, out of a heart of faith, not empty works. The Christian ordinaries, keep doing them. As Moses said, keep doing them, keep doing them, you will cut your souls. The Christian ordinaries, enjoy being part of the church gathered every Sunday, singing with all our hearts and souls, all our strength, singing to one another as we did this morning. Engaging with the preaching of God's word. Praying our Bible, praying, meditating, and reading through our Bibles every Sunday. Giving regularly, being generous, serving, seeing where the need is, joyfully serving. All of this nourishes our soul in Christ. Excuse me. Let me close with this one final thought. How do we find the power? doing our faith. How do we find the power to live all of this out? We all want to do this. I don't doubt my own good intentions or any of our good intentions. None of us purposely set out to live a lousy life. We all desire to live good, godly, faithful lives. We want to do this. We tell ourselves we want to do this. We tell each other we want to do this. But we all struggle to find the power. How do we find the power to do this? That answer to is right here in the passage. It's in verse 7. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? This is Moses teaching the Israelites. Hundreds of years before Christ Jesus was born. For them, for Moses, for Israelites, God was near to them in the sense that as they were walking through the wilderness from Egypt to the promised land, God was near them always. Through the day, he was a pillar of cloud. In the night, he was a pillar of fire. 
And so God was with them through the journey. And Moses, when he's inviting the Israelites, teaching the Israelites, he's telling them, God's near to you. You can call on to him. He's near to you whenever you call upon him. This was their truth. This was their reality. But we have a greater reality. We have a greater meaning of God who is near to us. Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus is near to us in three ways. He is near to us in his incarnation. He is near to us in his atonement for our sins. And he's near to us in our sanctification. First, Jesus is near to us in his incarnation. God became man to atone for the sins of man. God didn't sit away far, far high in the heavens and delivers all of them. Emmanuel, God with us, God becoming man in Christ Jesus, so he can walk near to us. Jesus is near to us in his incarnation. Jesus is near to us in his atonement. He died as our substitute. He bore the punishment we should have borne. He paid the price we should have paid, but we never could have. Yes, really 
invited to be near the U.S. family. He desires that. He has promised that. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Who opens the door and will enter into his heart and dine with him. That is the promise of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the earth, the Son of God. Let us pray. Father, we worship you, Lord. I know, Lord, through our words and actions, intentionally and unintentionally, that we so often put, try to put a distance between you and us. But you always persevere, Lord. We know that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so we pray, yielding our lives to you, help us to keep our souls that we might live the fullness of lives that you desire for us to live. And those of us who are not followers of Jesus, maybe here for the first time, we pray the Spirit of God, would you invite them, would you tugger their hearts and enable them to put their faith in this Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name,